I was about 14 and it was the summer holidays and I was working at the school that I went to and lived at and my dad worked there so I lived there. Um, I was doing general maintenance work, kind of handyman stuff, electrical work, stuff like that. And um, I remember um, going into the boiler room at the school and I noticed there was a phone socket on the wall with a cable coming out of it and going into the heating system. And there was a number written above the phone socket. And I just got a modem probably about six months before then. And I was using that to connect through to bulletin board systems, BBSs. So it's kind of predates the internet, really. Um, this would have been about 95, 96, kind of uh, quite a long time ago. Um, so you use modems to connect really, really slowly to BBSs. It was all text-based, there were no images. Um, and when I saw that number, I thought this this is a way of connecting to the heating system to control it. So that evening I went home and I sat there with a bit of software that you use to connect to the BBSs. And I, I really had no idea what I was doing. But it was kind of at that point that I'd realized that the only thing protecting that system was the fact that no one knew what that number was and no one knew how to connect to it. This is Andrew Tierney, better known online as Cyber Gibbons. Andrew has earned his reputation hacking things like thermostats, home alarms, and other hardware like cryptocurrency wallets. So it makes a lot of sense that his first ever hack, back in the 90s, was to take control of his high school's heating system from his bedroom. I am Lorenzo Franceschi Bicchierai, and this is a new episode of My First Hack, a series that details the origin stories of hackers and security researchers. Hi, Andrew. Thank you so much for being here. How are you doing today? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. And uh, yeah, excited for you to be here. Um, I've Obviously, I've followed your work for a while. We've talked for a lot of stories, but I'm happy that uh, we're here to talk a little bit about your origin story as a hacker. Yeah. And um, yeah, let's, uh, you know, let's, let's get on it. Uh, what was your first hack? So I think my first hack was, uh, I was about 14 and it was the summer holidays and I was working at the school that I went to and lived at and my dad worked there so I lived there. Um, I was doing general maintenance work, kind of handyman stuff, electrical work, stuff like that. And um, I remember going into the boiler room at the school and I noticed there was a phone socket on the wall with a cable coming out of it and going into the heating system. And there was a number written above the phone socket. And it was a, a London number, like I was expecting. And I'd just got a modem probably about six months before then. And I was using that to connect through to bulletin board systems, BBSs. So it's kind of predates the internet, really. Um, this would have been about 95, 96, kind of uh, quite a long time ago. So you use modems to connect really, really slowly to BBSs. It was all text-based. There were no images. And when I saw that number, I thought this this is a way of connecting to the heating system to control it. So that evening I went home, which was probably barely 150 meters away from the boiler house. And I sat there with a bit of software that you use to connect to the BBSs. And I, I really had no idea what I was doing. Um, I, I took that piece of software, it was called Terminate. It used to be really, really popular for connecting through to BBSs. And it was kind of like monkeys 
uh, and typewriters, I just had to try every combination of settings um, against that number. So you had to call that number. You got the noises with the modem. It picked up at the other end and then it would connect. And most of the time, nothing would happen. And eventually, after going through all these settings like compression and, and the speed and everything, I eventually got it to work and I got a text based menu system come up for the heating system. There was no password. There was nothing there whatsoever protecting the security of it. And you could change the schedule of the heating, the temperature, all of those things like that. But it was kind of at that point that I'd realized that the only thing protecting that system was the fact that no one knew what that number was and no one knew how to connect to it. You know, modems weren't hugely popular back then. I think that was really my first foray into doing things with computer systems that you're, you're not really meant to be doing. Yeah, so this was essentially phone freaking, right? Like phone hacking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, ab about the same sort of period of time, um, th this is when the Anarchist cookbook was quite popular and there was, there was, you know, no one cared about you having it back then. Um, so yeah, I was quite into phone freaking as well. Um, the big thing back then was uh, blue boxing, where you sent control tones um, down the phone line, especially when you called um, foreign countries operators, and that would allow you to like break out of the phone session you were in and start dialing other people. Um, yeah, it was good fun. And in this case, I guess you were you were accessing a, sort of a prehistoric smart um, heating system, right? Like obviously, there's no there's no interface, there was no app, but that's what it was basically. Yeah, just a. a years years and years after that probably when i was about sort of 19 or 20 i saw the machine running in it it was an old um i think it was a 286 really really old pc that that connected through to that that served that system so you said that it took a while for you to figure out how to use it like did you have any strategy uh were there any like you know instructions that you could use or you just sort of like tried everything you could I just tried everything I could really. I mean, back then modems were, were slow. So I think I had a 14.4 modem. So there was only a number of speeds like 9,600, 4,800, 2,400, 1,200 you could go to. And then a few other different settings you could change. There wasn't really that much you could um, you could do. And back then I didn't have the internet. So it wasn't like you could, I mean, Google didn't exist, I don't think, back then. You couldn't just search for the manual or anything like that. So yeah, it was working completely in in you know without any knowledge of what was going on so yeah classic trial and error you know the basic yeah yeah the base of any hacking i guess yeah i guess it, it was just enumeration it was just working out working out what to do um i mean that was the kind of thing you only really saw in films um back then with someone dialing into something and then and then making a computer you know afar do something it, so it seemed quite cool when i was 14 mm-hmm it was your first time sort of reverse engineering how a system worked. Yeah, yeah. And how, how long did it take you? Like, was it just a few hours or? Um, I think I was up until about two in the morning messing about. So yeah, finished work, got in, started messing about with the computer. And it, it, yeah, it took a good few hours, sat there um, until early in the morning. But once I'd done it, it was like, well, what can I do here? I can change the heating. I can turn the heating on and off. I already had the keys to the boiler room, so I could just walk over and do it. But it was more the fact that you could, I could have done that from anywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. So did you use this axis or it was just kind of like an exercise? It was just an exercise really back then. Um, it did lead on to, to more of the same sort of stuff though. Um, there was another thing that was done back then called war dialing, um, where essentially you just tried dialing 
every single number and trying to connect to the other end um, to to work out what was going on. Um, so that was that was something that I did in later years, where you just dial lots and lots of numbers until you get an answer and you see what that system is on the other end. Um, you used to be able to find phone systems. Um, there were a few lifts as well back then that, that had controllers that were connected via modems. Did you find anything interesting or exciting in this word dialing times? To be honest, not really. There, there, was, there wasn't that much that was connected that you could really understand. And, and if it didn't automatically give you some text or something back when you connected, then you couldn't really work out what was going on. So looking back at your, you know, the, this thermostat hack, what did you think uh, it taught you? Um, and how, do you think it shaped your, the rest of your career in any way? I think the thing is, and it's still the same today, people are connecting things to the internet now, but they were connecting it to phone networks back then without kind of any consideration that anybody would mess about with them. I mean, a lot of what we do as hackers is just trying things that other people don't think of trying. Hacking, it's just looking at the manual and thinking about those things that people don't think to do, those things the manual tells you not to do, go and do those things. So it's when people aren't expecting it that you find these security holes. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And so how did you go from, you know, from being a teenager and turning on and off your heating school's heating system from your bedroom to a security researcher, you know, with a with a legit career? Well, it was quite a long journey. Um, I went to university and I did electronic engineering at university. After that, I ran a company with a friend for a, for a year or so doing general IT work. Then I moved into financial IT. No, sorry. Then I went to C and worked at C for a bit. Then I moved into financial IT. And I kind of got a bit bored of that working in general IT. And I started my own company doing information security stuff. Um, that really happened just because I was doing it as a hobby. Um, I was kind of doing electronics, microcontrollers, looking at burglar alarms, thermostats, things like that. I mean, that was kind of my my gateway, my first vulnerability that I disclosed was in a home thermostat that was internet connected. Again, it, it was one of those devices where there was, there was probably about 10,000 of them connected to the internet in the UK. You just needed a pin number to log into them, um, but you could just try every single pin number until you managed to log into it and then you know, change people's heating, turn it on and off. And the company who made that thermostat, their response when I tried disclosing it was, well, no one knows what your IP address is, so how would they find it? But the thing was, 
this was when Shodan existed. So we could search the internet for all of these thermostats, see where they were, connect to them and mess about with people's heating. Um, I didn't do that. But then the day it did get released, lots of people got their heating changed by people who exploited the vulnerability. So you always had a close relationship with um, thermostats because I remember a few years ago, uh, I wrote about um, one of your research. I think you were the one or you contributed to creating the first proof of concept uh, ransomware for smart thermostats, right? Yeah, yeah. That I mean, that was a, essentially a stunt hack. We just wanted to show that you could take a device that's got a screen on it, a user interface, and control something physical and say, it's not going to do it anymore until you've paid us money. And I think we're probably at the stage where nowadays we're, we're likely to actually see ransomware across uh, an IoT system in the near future. So yeah, it was, it was just really showing that. Thermostats are great because they're really common. They're probably one of the most common IoT products. Um, maybe cameras are a little bit more popular with the advent of Ring and things like that. But yes, yeah, so many thermostats, which is kind of why we went for those. Yeah, baby monitors as well. I would say maybe fitness trackers, if you want to call them Internet of Things. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't really like the term Internet of Things. Really, it's it's more. I just like thinking of them as devices that are, are not general purpose computers. So yeah, definitely fitness devices fall into that. And uh, it's been a few years since that proof of concept. Like, do you think that the Internet of Things, or you know, this world of devices that connect to the internet? has improved in terms of security. You know, a few years ago, we saw also Mirai, which was this pretty nasty worm that uh, spread to a bunch of cameras and recording devices connected to the internet and used them to, you know, as a botnet to launch uh, distributed denial of service attacks. Like what, you know, have you seen any improvements or changes over the last few years? I think it's really hard to say. I think overall, we've got a lot more IoT today than we did five years ago. Um, things like Home Assistant's Alexa uh, it, it are in so many people's houses now that it's almost become ubiquitous. And I think what we've seen is that security has really diverged. Before, most security was pretty bad, whereas now we've got some devices where the security is pretty good. Things like Alexa, we, we haven't seen mass hacks of Amazon devices. But on the, the flip side, we've got massive IoT systems where it is possible to take control of all of them remotely via an API relatively easily. So they've got further apart the bad and the good. So we understand more about securing these devices, um, which is good. I think the challenges we're now facing are a lot of these are privacy-based ones. I don't think I don't think we've really comprehended the impact that having hundreds of cameras and microphones all around us all of the time really has on us. Yeah, that's a whole different issue, I think. And yeah, I agree with you that yeah. we should definitely, we haven't really done a lot of thinking about it. I feel in terms of security, as you said, you know, there's so many Alexas, Google Nests now, and those are generally fine. Like, you know, if I have a, a family member or friend that says, hey, should I have an Alexa or a Ring camera? Is that safe? Is that secure? My answer is Basically, you know, if there's a big company behind it, it's secure, you know, I wouldn't do it for the privacy issues, but, you know, you're not going to take over, yeah. you know, 100,000 Google Nests and, and, and 
just watch what's going on. I think the issue is that there's so many other manufacturers that are not as big and don't have big security teams like Google and Amazon. And, and those devices are just out there waiting to be hacked. Yeah. I mean, there's some huge deployments of systems now. I don't know how many Alexas there are, millions now, but there's other systems where there's tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of devices. And when when you could ransomware them, when it's when it's cameras and you can view those cameras, people are motivated to actually attack them. I mean, there's a difference from Mirai years ago. Uh, so that was the, the botnet that infected uh, CCTV digital video recorders, DVRs. That didn't really focus on an IoT platform or a cloud system. It was individual DVRs that were exposed to the internet, which used to be a very common way of people remotely accessing them. But now that we've moved to the the kind of cloud connectivity way of doing things, where there's a web API, a mobile app, that that means that people have got that kind of central point to attack. So they can go, oh, look, there's a security company offering cameras. I'll download the mobile app. I'll mess about with it. I'll connect and I'll, I'll attack that. They don't even have to buy the devices to look at them. These central points of failure uh, with cloud systems, I mean, they've got ups and downs. But the problem is if someone does compromise them you know it can be game over for every single connected device yeah and we've seen that in the real world yeah so what are you hacking these days anything interesting coming up any new devices since covid's hit it's been a bit crazy to be honest definitely seen things shift over the last couple of years we've been doing a lot of uh, industrial control system work most of that's paid work rather than research um, but again, we're seeing massive paradigm shifts where people really want to start securing these devices. Um, in the past, industrial control stuff, everybody's like, well, it's got to be air-gapped. If it's not air-gapped, it can be compromised. But now vendors are saying, well, these air-gaps break. People end up connecting these devices to the corporate network or even the internet. Let's make them secure. But this is the thing. It, it, the the world of hardware and you know not normal computers, it, it's always changing. There's, there's just so many different spheres. There's maritime, there's industrial control systems, there's fitness trackers, there's cameras, there's kids' toys, there's headphones, there's cars, there's all these different things. And, and they've all got slightly different requirements. And yeah, it's, it, it's an ever-changing job, um, which is great. There will always be bugs and vulnerabilities and, and people who can find them. So it's good that people like you are looking to make things better. Yeah, yeah, I think, well, I mean, generally what, I, I don't know if the rest of the pen testing industry really, or security industry really agrees with this. It, we want to stop just finding vulnerabilities in things and start trying to fix them before they get put into devices. Because it's all well and good finding vulnerabilities. And, you know, some of them are fun, they end up in the press. But when it comes down to it, a little bit of work right at the beginning when a product's been designed, you can generally build in security and make it so much better right at the beginning. So, I mean, I guess that, that's like moving away from the hacker mindset and, and more thinking about, you know, how do you, how do you help people build these systems securely? But definitely helps having that hacker mindset to start with to, to give people that advice. Yeah, I think that's a very good philosophical shift. We can't just bolt security on top of things. Also, you know, there's the problem of patching, you know, even though, you know, let's say you find a vulnerability in a thermostat, the company responds to it, issues a patch, and maybe not all the users apply it, and then they're all vulnerable. So it would have been much better to just, you know, think about it before pushing things out. Yeah, definitely.
So I think I've asked this to all, all the guests on this show before, you know, looking back at your career and, you know, the, your first hack, what would you tell young aspiring hackers who want to enter, you know, this amazing cyber world? I think the thing is that there's no, there's no one true path to get into cybersecurity. It, it's such a varied um, industry. I think it's one of those things that you can do where you, you genuinely end up doing something you love. You really like doing it. And I think just pretty much follow your heart. People who say you have to do X, Y, and Z to get into it, that's probably what they did and succeeded. But there's a million different ways to get into it. Um, so I think if you're really interested in it, just apply yourself uh, and see where it goes. Just be curious, essentially. Yeah, you've hit the nail on the head there. Hacking is really about curiosity. It, it's about thinking of things that other people wouldn't think of and, and trying them and 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 not when you fail which you will do for every hack you carry out there'll be a hundred things you try that don't work before you hit the one that does work and sometimes you'll try a thousand things sometimes ten thousand things and none of them work but always keep on trying and and just just do what's fun and interesting to you yeah because even when you fail the process is what really matters because you you can learn the process and apply to other things that you know, will eventually lead to a success and a successful hack. Yeah, yeah, totally. I think there's one thing that we're really bad at as hackers or, or, or maybe people who work in the security industry. We don't talk about our failures. We don't document them. It's rare you'll find a blog where someone will talk about how they didn't hack something. They'll always talk about how they succeeded and they'll miss all the things they did before they managed to succeed. And I'm guilty of that, totally. Yeah, that's a good point. So, so I'll let you go soon, but I, I had to. I've always wanted to ask you: Where does your nickname Cyber Gibbons come from? <laughs> where, where does Cyber Gibbons come from? Um, I'm I'm a bit fuzzy on exactly how it happened. So it's back to those BBS days, the bulletin board systems in the mid '90s. The second master, who's like just below the headmaster at my school, was called Mister Gibbons, and. I used to get in trouble a lot at school and for, I, I really can't remember why it, it was kind of me trying to be rebellious. I think I was like maybe trying to goad him in some way by posting emails or something like that. And, and we came up with, with the name cyber Gibbons. Cyber was like a really popular word in the mid nineties to describe, you know, connected things, the internet. Um, so yeah, it was the second master at school plus the word cyber um, and it, it stuck there for the last 25 years. Oh, wow. I didn't realize it was so, so old. Um, so, so did you, did you get yeah. in trouble for the thermostat hack or no one ever realized it? No, no one ever noticed that. Um, so hopefully it's past the statute of limitations. So I'm not going to get in trouble. No, no one ever noticed that. The, the things at school were, were largely unrelated to, to hacking. Mm-hmm. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for joining the show and uh, please uh, turn up the heat in my home because it's getting a little cold here. <laughs> cool, I will do. Thank you again. Take care. Great, thanks. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.